Well, we've been in Acts for several semesters now. We kind of restarted it last last week. And uh, it's really been a riveting study about what God's been doing, as described in the book, um, in fulfillment of Scripture, in fulfillment of what He had predicted to do in the Old Testament. And Luke is really concerned that we see that and see it unfolding in, in the book of Acts and how God is fulfilling um, Old Testament predictions and promises and patterns um, in the life of the church. And we started uh, in back, we started our series back up in Acts 15 last week um, with a story entitled The Jerusalem Council. And we didn't quite finish it up. Uh, I kind of ran out of time there at the end. Um, for the probably the most significant part of that message, so I want to come back and revisit that today. Um, again, it's entitled the Jerusalem Council, and it's when uh, Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem to settle uh, an issue, a debate really, that was going on that was really threatening the heart of the gospel within the church. And uh, what we learned last week, you can go ahead and open to Acts 15, But what we learned last week, we can sort of summarize it like this, that Paul's gospel is seriously challenged. The gospel that he's preaching to the, to the Gentiles, and we're seeing Gentiles convert to Christ and to the, being part of this, this church and new covenant people of God. Gentiles are converting, but, and it's through Paul's gospel, the gospel that Jesus had, had commissioned him with. But this gospel is seriously challenged. And it's challenged by Jewish believers from the home church in Jerusalem. And yet, as we see the story progress, it's vindicated by that same church in Jerusalem, resulting in greater clarity and unity in the churches. So Paul's gospel is challenged. That's what we saw last week. The story falls into t- to two halves. Initially, the, the story, the, the gospel is challenged, and then it's vindicated. And so our outline from last week was just this, just a quick review. Paul's gospel is challenged. Let's read, uh, let's read the verses here in verse 1. But some men, the context here is they're in Antioch, which is outside of the land of Israel. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's not what Paul is preaching. That's a threat to the gospel. Paul is preaching that to be saved, you trust in Jesus, the Messiah. And that's it. And they're saying, no, 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 we need to add circumcision um, to this, this Gentile group. And that was sort of the marker of becoming an Israelite under the Old Covenant. You accepted circumcision, which meant that you were going to now submit to the regulations of the Mosaic Law. And so these Jewish believers are saying, okay, it's fine that Gentiles are being saved or, or believing in Jesus, but to be completely saved, they have to really become an Israelite. That was kind of the, the idea here. And that was counter to what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. And so, it says in verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, meaning very big disagreement, uh, they had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, significant debate in the church in Antioch. And Antioch's like, this doesn't sound right we've got to send a delegation back up to the mother church in Jerusalem, to the apostles, and figure out this issue. Is this necessary for salvation or is it not? 
And so, verse 3, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And notice the result. And this brought great joy to all the brothers. So those people outside of Judea, outside of the mother church, the believers, when they hear about conversion of Gentiles, as Gentiles, by faith, that brings them joy. So we even see hints that, okay, Paul and Barnabas are on the right track here. So when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And kind of right in the middle of this, as they're describing what God's doing in the gen- among the Gentiles, notice what happens in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is what we're calling the threat to the gospel, the threat to the heart of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And it has to do with, it was a threat in Antioch, and the issues are raised in Antioch, and then when they got to the Jerusalem church, the issues are raised again. It's the same, the same issues of adding things, uh, adding necessities for the Gentiles to submit to in order for them to be saved. And we would think it would just kind of be smacked down by the apostles. Like, this is, you know, this is done. You know, we're, we're not going to entertain this. But the apostles and elders, this is a difficult question. Like, okay, they're coming out of the Old Covenant. It did say that in the Old Testament. So what do we do with that now? So they've got to consider this, this question. And it says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. And now this is where Peter kind of ends the debate. And he ends it by declaring what God had done with him as he saved Cornelius, the first Gentile convert in the book of Acts. And Peter ends this debate, which kind of leads to the second major, major section of this story, the, the vindication of Paul's gospel. So it's challenged up front, debated, and then Peter stands up and silences the debate. And here's what he says. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So this is God's idea. God chose for the Gentiles both to hear and to believe the gospel. So, number one, God's idea. And God, who knows the heart, actually bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So if their hearts are already cleansed, and the evidence of that is the Spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles, apart from circumcision, apart from their obedience to the law, it's just being poured out on them freely, by God's grace, then that implies that they've been cleansed fundamentally. And they don't need to submit to some sort of ritual cleansing, according to Judaism and the Old Covenant. They've already been cleansed. There's a fundamental cleansing of the heart that's happened. And God evidenced that by the pouring out of His Spirit before they were ever circumcised. That's His argument. And there's no distinctions now between Jews and Gentiles. Because God did the same thing to us, is Peter's point. Even though they were circumcised, they were transgressors. And worthy of God's judgment. Yet, simply because they believed in Acts 2 and they, they received the Spirit as a result. And so, 
He says in verse 10, he draws an inference. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our our Lord Jesus or of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So we see the basis. Peter underscores the basis of their salvation. It's not by their ability to obey the law or by their circumcision. Peter's like, by the way, we've never obeyed. Okay? Let's just be clear about that. So we're trying to place a yoke on their necks that we've never even obeyed. And that Jesus had to die for because we failed to obey. So he's just trying to be clear about about that. And he's underscoring the very basis of our salvation, which is the God's grace alone that's received simply by our trusting in Jesus. So, Peter preserves the clarity of the gospel and the good news of the gospel, which, again, God's sovereignly in control of this whole thing and he's working it out. So that was Peter's, Peter's way of silencing the debate. Look in, um, look in verse 12. All the assembly fell silent before they were in an uproar. Now they're silent. And they listened. They were able to listen to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And this brings us to really, you know, Peter vindicates Paul's gospel first and then it enables the church to hear Paul and Barnabas, and what they were saying. And that leads finally to James. James, the Lord's brother, who wasn't part of the the twelve originally, but he became, very quickly, a leader of the church. Um, By his godliness, church history tells us, and that he's just kind of a a revered guy. And so James, clearly Jewish, clearly kind of a ringleader for the the Jewish believers here in, in Jerusalem, speaks up. And really confirms what Peter says. He really affirms it by quoting the Old Testament and saying the Old Testament is actually being fulfilled. We're watching fulfillment happen right now in these events. So not only did, did God confirm it through Peter's own experience of how he saved Cornelius, but he's also, and he's confirming it through the signs and wonders of Paul and Barnabas as they share the gospel among the Gentiles. He also confirms it by the, the witness or the testimony of the prophets of the Old Testament. And that's really what I want us to camp on this morning um, in the time that we have left. And so, really, we're only going to focus on these few verses here. And the reason I want to do that is because usually when we're working through Acts, we're working through entire stories. And we don't have a lot of time to really unpack some of these references to the Old Testament. And their significance. I kind of give, I do a lot of study kind of in my, during my week on the significance. And I share like a tenth of that with you guys. Uh, and there's really all this backdrop to, to even my own study of these passages. But today I want to take a little extra time and unpack this, this prophecy and its fulfillment today. And it might seem heady for some of you guys. It might be like, okay, he's, he's going a little deep for us. This is early on Sunday morning and just give us something easy to, to eat. Well, I could do that, and, and but I'm not going to do that this morning. So I just, I'm just not going to apologize for it. This is this is going to be some some robust stuff for you. But I think what you're going to see is is really as as we understand how this passage is being used, our faith is going to be strengthened mightily. And I think that's Luke's intention for us. And one of the things, kind of as a side note, that we want to do in our ministry at Boundless is as we're working through Scripture, we've only got four years max with most of you. 
And that's on a good day. That's on a, that's on a best case scenario. You know, you're going to go through and graduate and you leave us. Half the time I don't even know it's coming. And then they just don't show up next semester. So it kind of grieves me. That's my own fault. That's not anybody else's. I don't have any names like Daniel. <laughs> Sorry. He told, he told me multiple times. I just, I just wasn't listening. So one of the things we want to do, because we only have a limited time, amount of time with you guys, is as we're studying Scripture, we want to develop a, a robust biblical theology for you guys. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say biblical theology, that could kind of trigger a bunch of different thoughts in your minds. It could mean a theology that's biblical, right? Uh, and so sometimes when you say that, people think of a systematic theology that's just biblical, like our system that we, we believe God, God's like this, and man's like this, and salvation's like this. And we want that to be biblical. And that's a good thing. We should. We're all systematic theologians. We all kind of bring our thoughts about God together um, in our minds. But that's not what I mean when I say, that's not exactly what I mean when I say biblical theology. What I have in mind is an approach to theology that sort of lets Scripture unfold its categories. So it starts at the beginning with Genesis and or wherever these, the theme starts, and it unfolds as Scripture progresses, um, or as Scripture reveals the theme or the, the story progressively. So, in other words, the Bible gives us the theological categories up front, and then we let the Scripture shape them for us as the story unfolds. Does that make sense? So there's an order to the way that God's given us His revelation, and there's, there are themes that we see develop through Scripture. And this is sometimes called the storyline of Scripture. It's called um, you know, a thematic study of Scripture. But it's really just the progressive unfolding of the truth as God has given it to us. And that's important to establish for a few reasons, okay? Number one, it helps us to understand how to read Scripture well. Does it make sense? It helps us understand how to read Scripture well. So, I don't know how many of you have ever kind of dropped into a portion of the Bible and you're like, I don't really know what's going on right now. How this fits or anything. It's just kind of like, it's confusing to you. So, when we, when we grow in our understanding of biblical theology and connecting these things together, it helps us grow in, in our understanding of script, how to read Scripture itself. And as a result of that, it helps us understand how to apply Scripture. Again, you've probably been reading Leviticus. Thinking, why, how, what do we do with this? You know, I don't want to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So I don't know what to do with that, right? Like, but I believe it's part of my scriptures that God intends to use for my good and for His glory. So how do I, how do I understand that? Sometimes we don't know where we are in scripture and really where we are matters because that's how the truths are applied to us. So biblical theology helps us to apply scripture better. And it helps us see, to see the continuity of Scripture, meaning how it all fits together. And as a result, when you see that, you've probably experienced this, your faith is strengthened. You say, God, I mean, we believe the Bible's inspired, but when you have significant questions about how things fit, it kind of undermines your faith a little bit. But as you begin to see how it all fits together, your faith is strengthened, and we have assurance and confidence that God really is working. And in that, it helps us to see God's attributes clearly. We see His wisdom unfolding as His plan is coming to bear, just as He intends it. We see His sovereignty put on display as He controls all events to shape them for their intended outcome. 
We see His faithfulness on display as He makes promises back here and brings them to pass even in spite of His people's unfaithfulness. We see His mercy again on display. Those are just to name a few of His attributes as we really give attention to biblical theology as it's developing. We watch God guiding His plan, making promises and bringing them to fulfillment really in spite of of us oftentimes. And so this again fuels our trust in Him. So we want to be developing that biblical theology in you in Boundless and in our church at large through, through Pastor Brian's preaching and, and here. And so that's one of, the, one of the main reasons I'm going to key in on this passage this morning. So if we kind of get back to our passage, what we're going to see today in, in James' speech is that James affirms Peter by appealing to the prophets for God's own ancient prediction of these events that are happening. James affirms Peter what Peter said, and and then kind of by implication, Paul and Barnabas and what they're doing, by appealing to the prophets for God's own ancient prediction of these events. Look in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written... After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. Why? So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Namely, this is who the remnant is, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So kind of out of the gate here, he affirms Peter. So here's James' contribution to the Jerusalem Council. He affirms Peter in this this kind of first statement in verses 13 and 14. He says, look, guys, Peter just recounted this for us. And and what this is is really a recounting of God, he says, visiting, interesting word, visiting the Gentiles to take for them from the Gentiles a people for himself. This terminology is unique. It's, it's kind of terminology of Israel in the Old Testament. So God's all the time described as he's either visited or going to visit his people. It can be for salvation or judgment. And in this case, it's salvation. It's positive. God's going to, God's visited his people as he's poured out his spirit on them. And he's taken from these Gentiles a people for himself. And this word for people in Luke Acts is all about Israel. This, this time and one other time in the book, it refers to Gentiles. And the rest of the other time, the rest of the times it should have had the number, but it's probably under a hundred, but close, uh, of times this word is used, laos in Greek, it refers to the nation of Israel, the people. So what James is saying here is that just like God visited and selected and chose Israel in the Old Testament and, and us again in Acts 2, as he poured out his spirit, he's done the same thing for Gentiles. God's visited them and taken from them a people for his own namesake. He owns them, in other words. That's the idea of, of a people for his name. God has now created a covenant people for himself from the Gentiles as Gentiles. They don't need to be Israelites. God's chosen them as Gentiles right alongside Israel. And this is Peter's interpretation of what Peter just recounted in his own experience. So he affirms Peter. 
But after he does this, he knows he needs to show how what's happened is rooted in the Old Testament. God says he would take some of the Gentiles as his own people, um, and, and that's not a new thing. That's not a new idea. In fact, God predicted this very thing a long time ago. So in the following verses, James actually appeals to God's own ancient prediction of these events. Look in uh, verse 15. And with this, what he just said, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. So, notice the plural there. Words, plural, of the prophets, plural. So he's referring to all the prophets and all their words. They agree. Now he gives an example. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen. I will rebuild its ruins restore it so that... Here's the kicker. The remnant of mankind might seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name. So, he's appealing to God's own ancient prediction here. Now, he's appealing mostly to Amos 9, 11 and 12. Amos 9, 11 and 12. That's sort of his anchor text, if you will. Kind of the thing that's guiding this this whole quote. But here's a problem. We face it kind of up front. If you turn in your Bibles to Amos 9, and you read 11 and 12, it's going to sound a little bit different than what you see here. And there's some interesting differences. And you might think, now, hang on. Like, how is this, how is this working? Why are there differences? Well, we can, we can sort of account for these differences in two ways. I'm not going to go in depth here, but if you want to go in depth about this, talk to me at lunch, Okay. We can account for these differences in sort of two fundamental ways. James is not quoting from the the Hebrew text, it doesn't appear. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew text that was common in his day. Some people call it the Septuagint. Uh, That's just the the name for it. We could go into the background and all that. But it's just it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And so he's quoting a translation similar to the NIV or something like that, that might sound a little bit different than, than the original language. It's an interpretation in some places. And that's, that's what a translation does. So that kind of gives one aspect of, of why it might be a little different. But the other reason is because James also brings in other phrases from other prophecies and the other parts of prophetic literature and kind of connects them with this Amos text. I think now. How can you do that, James? Well, the easy answer is he was inspired, so he can do what he wants. But that's not, that's not, that's kind of a cop-out, okay? Um, basically, what I think James is doing is he's doing good biblical theology. He's essentially bringing together different strands of the Old Testament hope and bringing them all together in sort of a, what I call like a composite quote, Okay? And it's and he's doing good theology here and saying, look, the prophets as a whole predicted what we're seeing here. And if that's interesting to you, again, come see me and we'll talk more about the significance of that. We'll look at some of the differences and, and why that is. But we're going to focus on what we see right here in front of us. And this is one of the most significant appeals to the Old Testament in the book of Acts. I'm just going to say that and... Can defend it later, but I think this is one of the most significant appeals. It's a snapshot of the entire story of Luke Acts. So, you know, back up, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Two volumes. Volume 1, Volume 2. This quote, 
from the Old Testament is like a snapshot of Luke and Acts and the fulfillment that's taking place from the Old Testament perspective. Right in the middle of the book of Acts. I love it. Okay? So let's get into it. He says, essentially, this, this prophecy sort of unfolds in three lines, three kind of three, three phases. First, he says, the Lord will return. Okay, and in verse 15, or 16, after this, I will return, and then he goes on to say other things. So who's the I? Who's, who's the subject of this, of this quote? Well, you see it, look at the bottom of it, and at the end of verse 17, um, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So the Lord is speaking, and the Lord says, I'm gonna return. I'm gonna come back. So the Lord's the subject. But where is he returning from? What's, what's going on here? Why does he say he's returning? Well, this, the, the opening phrase, after this, or literally, after these things, I will return, gives us a clue. As you can see from my little point up here, I'm saying the Lord will return after exile. In particular, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> battle in the cold if you can't tell, uh, or, or puberty, one of the two, you choose. After these things is a reference to, to the exile of Israel, the Babylonian exile, and the judgment that happened there. And this is a theme that runs throughout the prophets, that after, after Israel has been exiled because of their disobedience and rebellion, after that, the Lord's going to come back to them. Now, it still doesn't say, okay, why is, what's the coming back language? What's all that about? Well, God's picture is coming back to the, the people after exile, and he's got to come back because he symbolically left them. And that's why they were destroyed. Because of their idolatry. He had left them. And you can write down Ezekiel 10 and 11. And in this, this text, it's the, the leaving of God or the abandoning of God, or abandoning of Israel by God, is depicted in Ezekiel 10 and 11 as the glory of God actually leaving the temple and leaving Jerusalem and kind of going and resting on a mountain that we think is the Mount of Olives. And this, in Ezekiel 10 and 11, if you go back, is building on, originally, when the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the temple at its inception under King Solomon. As a symbol that God is dwelling here among His people Israel. And that builds upon the filling of the tabernacle in almost the same language back under Moses and in the Exodus. Again, tabernacle is the sort of semi-permanent tent. And then the temple is the tent, the, or the, the, the main dwelling of God in Jerusalem. So the glory of God inhabited both of those places and now is depicted as departing, which is symbolic for God's abandoning Israel to her enemies. So God took up residence with His people, but He's now left them because of their failure to worship Him. Judgment is coming to Israel, and it came in the form of exile. And so in our text, the after these things I will return is, is a reference to the promise that God would come back to his people and do certain things for them. Now, how does Luke understand this as f- being fulfilled here? Well, the obvious answer, I'd hope you would say, is in the coming of Jesus, right? Luke shows us that God had returned to his people first in Jesus when he sent him. So John was sent to prepare the people for the Lord's coming in Jesus. And another way of saying that's preparing them for his return after exile, Luke 1. But although God returned to his people, the people don't truly recognize 
Jesus. They don't, they don't respond to this visitation. Instead, they crucify him. They turn away from him again. And they end up killing Jesus in Jerusalem. Threat to the plan, like we saw last week. But this doesn't stop the Lord. It's actually used by God, obviously, to fulfill Scripture. And then after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, God visits his people again, this time by pouring out his promised spirit upon them. And I think this is another aspect of God visiting his people or or returning to his people after they're turning away from him. They repent and turn back to the Lord, and the Lord returns to them, this time in the form of the Spirit. Now think about how all these themes come together, okay? God would again take up residence among his people. And his glory is going to return to a new temple now through the Messiah that's being, that's being built up, if you will. And that brings us to the next thing, that, that the, the next aspect of this prophecy. So, so God predicted that he would return, we see in Jesus, in the coming of his spirit. And this return is going to do something. He's going to do something when he comes back. He says, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So I'm just summarizing this here and saying he's going to rebuild the next phase. He's going to rebuild David's tent. That's what it says here. So he's going to rebuild something or restore it. And specifically, he says it's the tent which has fallen. The tent of David which has fallen. Now this phrase is very difficult to interpret. I spent a lot of time last night not being able to sleep trying to think about how to say this uh, this morning. Um, it's kind of one of those weird problems that uh, I sometimes have. But the tent of David is an odd phrase. It's only used one other time in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And it could mean one of two things. Hang with me. It could mean the family of David, like his tent, kind of like our house, you know, that's where we family, that's where I live, where my kids live. The tent of David, is, and it, as is his family, or the Davidic dynasty is another way of putting that. So according to this interpretation, God's going to restore the rule of the Davidic king, which had fallen in the exile. He's going to restore this rule over Israel and over the nations. That's one view. Another view is the tent of David refers to the tent which was raised by David for the ark in Jerusalem, i.e. the tabernacle. So David didn't create the tabernacle. That was under Moses way back here. But David did bring the ark to Jerusalem and, and erected a tent for that ark before the temple was made. And in some places, this is, this is called, the, or the, in some literature outside of the Bible, it's called the tent of David, referring to the tabernacle. So according to this interpretation, the new king comes and restores or rebuilds God's dwelling, which had previously been destroyed, so that he can again live among the people. So God can take up residence among the people. Now, here's where I'm going to land, okay? I think the phrase is intentionally ambiguous. Meaning, it kind of encompasses both ideas. It's the tent of David, meaning the Davidic line and his dynasty is restored. But in the restoration of the Davidic king, it comes with the restoration of the temple, right? Remember David and Solomon? David wants to build a house, but he says, no, I'm going to transfer that to Solomon. He's going to build a house for my name and I'm going to establish his throne. That's what he says in 2 Samuel 7. So, rain and temple go together. And so I think that's kind of the idea that we're seeing here. This tent of David is referring to both the rain and the rebuilding of God's house or God's people. God's tent, to use it in this term. 
Now, track with me here about how Luke shows this has been fulfilled. At the ascension of Jesus, that signaled that his enthronement had taken place from Psalm 2. That showed that very clearly. He is reigning as the King of David in heaven now in a far greater way than any other Davidic king eternally, just like the Davidic covenant promised. So he's enthroned as king, but more so, I think, that this, this phrase kind of under, is, we should understand this in Jesus rebuilding and restoring work among the people of Israel in the early chapters of Acts. We could say beyond that, but especially in the early chapters of Acts. He's progressively saving the remnant of Israel in the early chapters of Acts. And Amos talks about this as the restoration of the tent. Or as God's place of worship under the Davidic king. And we see this being fulfilled as the Spirit is poured out first on the Jews in Jerusalem, then in the Jews and the half-Jews in Samaria, as he's, as he's sort of gathering this people, this building, if you will, this tent, for himself. Lest you think, there's so much I could talk about about this, okay? So I'm not. But flip back really quick to Acts 9. I'm going to give you one little snippet of why I think this is the case. Chapter 9, verse 31. You remember from our study previously that this is a summary of the first two stages of the mission, right? The gospel to Jerusalem and Judea Samaria. That's the first two stages. And this is coming at a summary of those first two stages. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that's Jewish region, the, the land of Israel, all the, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's an extremely uncommon word for Luke. Being built up. It's the same word that there's a prefix attached to it in our text. Being rebuilt. The same verb though is at its root. So what he is saying here is as the disciples are being multiplied among the nation of Israel, the whole nation isn't receiving the Lord, but a lot of them are. This is Christ rebuilding. They're being built up. It's building imagery, building language. And the only other time this is used, or at least the, the most recent time, was in reference to Solomon building the temple back in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's speech. So I think we have some, some good reason to understand this as being rebuilding. So, I'm going to stop there and just say, this restoration of the tent of David... I think, is the, the restoration of the Davidic dynasty in Jesus and as he's rebuilding his people, Israel, among them. But why? Why does this happen? This brings us to our third point. We're going to end on this. This happens. All of this happens so that the Gentiles can seek him. So the Gentiles can come to participate in the same thing they're participating in through them. They're functioning as the beacon, as the temple, or another imagery, as, as the light that they were intended to be, according to Isaiah. The nation was called to be a light to the nations, but they failed. And the Messiah is now restoring them so that, in this case, the Gentiles can seek the Lord. It's a metaphor of a new dwelling or a temple. Jesus is rebuilding these people of Israel into his own people who possess his spirit so that the Gentiles can come to know Jesus through their testimony. And that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are Jews. 
Luke is so careful to show us that every advance of the gospel happens through the Jews as they're bringing these, this good news of Christ to the nations as a, as a restored light. Now, I'm not saying that there's no future for the ethnic people of Israel. There is. If we had time, I could show you that in the book of Acts 2. A lot of them have been hardened. They have rebelled against Jesus, and they will suffer destruction and punishment, but that's not the end of the story for the nation. The nation, at the end, will come to believe in Jesus, and that will actually usher in his return. All I'm saying right now, all that Luke and and Amos and James are saying is that this restoration is happening in the book of Acts, and it has been happening, and it's so that the Gentiles, like you and I, can come into that. So it's profound. There's a lot of implications here off this, um, but we're, I mean, we're kind of running low on time here. But just think through this for just a minute. We're Gentiles, most of us at least, as far as I know. And we're strangers. Paul says we're strangers to the covenants of promise. Meaning that we don't belong here naturally, like Israel does. They're God's people in a unique sense. But we've come into this through their light, ultimately. I mean, it's been passed down for generations and generations now. But we've come into this new dwelling that God himself is building as a residence and abode for his spirit in the last days kind of opens the lid to how we view church, doesn't it? That's significant. So the Spirit, this is His abode. We are His abode. More than just individualistically, that's, that's true. We are a temple individualistically, but we are a temple corporately, too. And to think through the implications of that. It's the place where God resides to draw other Gentiles to Himself. We are the ends of the earth. I know sometimes we talk about the mission field, like outside of America, but guess what? Newsflash, we are the ends of the earth. <laughs> we've, we've gotten the gospel from Jerusalem, passed down. Does that make sense? So we're part of the mission field. And there's a mission field here, there's a mission field in China, there's mission fields everywhere. As the gospel reverberates to the world. And so, we are like a little outpost, a little temple, if you will, a little abode of God in Lynchburg, Virginia, that ought to be demonstrating the, the evidences of the Spirit among us. What are those? It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? So Paul says, he outlines those things. As we are transformed by the Spirit, as we grow, not all at one time, but progressively, as we grow into, into Him, walking by the Spirit, learning how to do that, learning how to evidence His love amongst ourselves, that's radically glorious. God's reforming us into the the new humanity that He intends us to be. As a beacon now, we get to participate in this light to others. So as the Spirit's transforming us, God will use our own transformation to draw others to Himself. When people see you're conquering porn, and people see you're not anxious like you used to be, people see you have answers for why you get so angry, and you know how to repent of that and be transformed out of that. When people see that, they don't have that. There's a power that's at work in you, and it's the Holy Spirit operating through the truth to set you free from that. And that's what it means to be part of the temple of God, to be participating in His, in His dwelling. And that same Spirit not only just transforms your life, but He emboldens your witness. We see that again and again in Acts. 
He'll embolden you with the truth, give you that timely word as you're looking for those opportunities in your community, in your neighborhood, at Liberty, wherever, to share the glorious good news of the gospel as a means that God will, will bring other Gentiles to himself. These are all implications that are just sort of flowing out of what it means to be part, to participate, like he says here, in this fulfillment of what the Old Testament was looking for and longing to. So I had some other stuff here to sort of conclude with, but we're way out of time, as usual. So, um, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to see, do you see the significance of what I'm calling biblical theology? You see how it's kind of like opens up the, what we're doing in a day-to-day basis and gives it way more significance um, in our assembly. So it helps us read our Bibles better and it equips us to, to know how to apply these things, these things better. And we can, you know, we can take lunch today and just work through all your questions and applications and implications from this passage. So let's do that. And thanks again just for indulging a little more in-depth study here. Let's pray.